Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. And what's up, STS Nation? Welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime and a special show tonight because it's just one-on-one and we'll tell you who the best guest is in just a moment uh but the case revolving around brian koberger of course the accused suspect in the idaho four murders uh it appears to be in a bit of flux and chaos with questions now swirling about the grand jury and uh outside influences uh an author in particular who wrote a controversial set of articles uh now there is a new book out while idaho slept uh it details the stories of the victims of the vicious quadruple stabbing murders Uh, we want to remind everyone that brian koberger is presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law now our best guest usually it's plural but uh this is a fascinating book and uh wanted to have some uh, alone time along with sts nation j reuben appleman's true crime memoir the kill jar was published by gallery simon and schuster back in 2018 it was among the first of the new true crime memoir genre published in all formats the kill jar inspired the popular hulu docuseries children of the snow uh, with jay rubin appleman serving as on-camera investigator and executive producer the tv series based on jay rubin's book has streamed tens of millions of times in america and abroad and the kill jar was noted as among the best true crime books of the year by the new york times book review L, Oxygen, Bustle, Crime Reads, and the USA Today Network of Newspapers. So that is uh, quite an accomplishment there. Before we get to Jay Rubin and his book, quick little note here, not a good one. That is Tim Jansen on the left. And if you notice, uh, he's in a hospital gown. He was out riding his bicycle. He hit a tree root, of all things, and went flying. And he's got five cracked ribs uh so he's in the hospital right now sts nation we sent him a little uh get well basket so uh thoughts are with tim jantz tonight heal up tim um as you know i like to mention the uh the victims uh here of course we've got kaylee gonzalez maddie mogan zana kernodal and ethan chapin uh may their memories be a blessing um Jay Rubin went out of his way. I think to focus on the victims, we're going to talk about that. This is, uh, if I can pull it up here, this is the book cover, Jay Rubin's book cover. Um, Here's a great first question from uh, STS Nation. I expected nothing less. Why did you write the book? Let's start right there, Jay Rubin. How come uh, you got involved? Why did you pick up this this job? Hey, man. Yeah, I um, it's interesting. You mentioned the kill jar. You, you gave a little rundown of the kill jar becoming uh, the children of the snow show and all that. Uh, my first book, uh, the kill jar, I wrote because uh, it, it was about some some murders that happened in my in my neighborhood as a kid growing up. Basically, um, uh, four kids were abducted, held in captivity at various times over a 13 month, 13 month period and eventually murdered um, and thrown back out into the streets. Um, for somebody to find them. And um, they never, they allegedly never solved that case. Uh, at the same time, somebody tried to abduct me when I was a kid around at that same period um, when they were looking for this kid killer. 
Um, nothing happened to me. I got away. Somebody tried to get me in their car and I basically just ran off. Wow. Um, it's, it's interesting because I was, I, I never told anybody about it until I was older because I was culpable in a crime at the time. Uh, I was shoplifting candy in a, in a local drugstore and I saw a, a, an older man see me do it and he was wearing a blazer and I thought he was a security guard uh, because he looked very official and I was a child. And um, four blocks later, after I, after I left the, the store um, is when he pulled up to me in his car and tried to get me into his car. We know now that that's not how security guards work. They don't follow little kids in their cars into other neighborhoods and stuff. But at the time I thought that's what was happening. So I never told anybody. And then as an adult, I started to wonder if, if the guy that had tried to abduct me was the, was the kid killer they were looking for. So I, I became obsessed with that case. What I'm telling you is that I, I was not somebody who decided I was going to write a true crime book and just pick, picked a topic, you know, um, it was a case that mattered to me. And so I ended up spending 10 years researching that case and writing that, that book, the kill jar. Um, once again, uh, for the, for the five years after the publication of The Kill Jar, I wasn't out looking for a true crime case to, to write about. Um, I, I, don't, I don't chase down murders. Uh, it's not my thing. Uh, I, I, um, it makes me uncomfortable to be in this world. Um, it's probably why I do it. Like they say in jiu-jitsu, get comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Uh, I, I'm uncomfortable in uncomfortable situations, so I, so I allow them to happen when they happen because I'm, I'm feeling... Like I can be, I can be a part of that somehow. Um, but, but I wasn't looking for it. Uh, what, what happened was I was minding my own business, like everybody else in Idaho and around the world. And four university of Idaho students got, got murdered in, in the thick of night. And, um, I have a lot of ties to that community. I live five hours South in Boise and, um, five hours might seem like a lot if you're from one of the coastal areas or from, you know, wherever, if you're from, you know, if you're from New York City, five hours from there, you could be in a whole different world, right? Um, but Idaho is very, very uh, closely knit place. Uh, there are many tentacles reaching between our communities here in Boise and the one up in Moscow. And um, I, you know, I, I know people whose children go to that go to the University of Idaho. Uh, my own daughter went to the University of Idaho, uh, graduated from there just a few years prior. Um, and you I, taught there, right? Didn't you teach there? No, I taught at Idaho State University and at Boise State University. Okay. Yeah, Idaho State, is in, Idaho State is in Pocatello in the east uh, part of the state, and Boise State is right, right in my backyard, so to speak. And um, but, but, uh, but uh, there, there were there. It felt like it happened in my backyard again, um, more or less. I mean, it, it sure it's five hours away, but. Uh, a big chunk of me is is tied to North Idaho. Uh, I, I feel a, a lot for that for that part of the state. And uh, I went up there just to sort of, uh, after the murders happened, I went up there not knowing I was writing a book. I went up there uh, wanting to be in touch with what was happening, the way, the way if there's some sort of uh, emergency on the other part of your town, uh, you, you sometimes want to go there to see what it's all about, not to ambulance gaze or whatever, but because you feel connected to your community and you want to know who's hurt, what happened, how does this, you know, what's going on, what's the temperature, what can I do? Um, I'm not an EMS driver. I, I don't wear a badge. I'm not a cop. Uh, but writers, writers, were, were, we are our own sort of, or we are another version of first responder, I like to say. And 
And I, I do believe that just like podcasters or anybody else, we get the information out there when it needs to get out there. And some, and sometimes uh, we actually uh, figure out a way to help besides giving mm-hmm. out the information. We, we figure out a way to add context to things that people don't have. If we're, if we're intuitive enough or empathetic enough or smart enough um, uh, in that order for me, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's more maybe like empathy, intuition, and then smarts. Smarts come about third for me on the list because that's that's just how I how I've built. But but and I, I I agree with you. It is a um it's kind of a pre- precarious genre to be in because it you know sometimes it can get uncomfortable because uh, and that's why I make it a point to read the victims' names off the top. Um, as a uh, you know former broadcast journalist, I think it's important to spotlight these stories. There's a horrible case out of um. And, and this is the days I feel great about this. There's a horrible case out of uh, Maryland. Rachel Morin was murdered on a hiking trail. She's a mom of five. Um, and I've become close with the family. And uh, they've they've thanked me. Um, I've had them on the show. Um, they need to catch the killer there. Uh, so this is how these platforms in your book, I think, can help. But uh, sometimes, you know, people... Uh, can be exploitative. And I think that's the rub against people like me and you. Have you come up against that? Um, Kaz here is asking, you know, did you have any apprehension about writing the book? Were you worried about being, you know, labeled uh, an exploiter or someone that's, you know, trying to make a buck off of this horrible crime? Yeah, absolutely. With the first book, the, the sister of the fourth victim actually wrote the foreword to my book. I was, I became that close with some of the family members, uh, it was a cold case and they wanted people to dig into it. And so they welcomed me with this. It was a little different because uh, I had to reach out to these people in the midst of their suffering. I had to, I had to go up to Moscow when everybody and their mother was trying to parachute into that town and get a piece of the pie, so to speak for their channel or for their, for, for their, you know, network or whatever. And um, yeah, I, I felt a lot of apprehension, especially because it's my own community um, I know that I could be walking around or be in a coffee shop and, and I'm, I might be standing next to the cousin of a victim or the, or the aunt of a victim or, or someone even closer. You know, I could be uh, run into one of the family members or something. You know, it's, it's Idaho. Uh, there's a lot of traffic between Boise and, and North Idaho and, and they come down here and we go up there and it's very likely that I'll run into them. And it was hard to talk to them on the phone and try to explain that I'm different than the, than the hundreds of people who were trying to reach out to them on a daily basis uh, and get their, get their story for their, their network or their magazine, especially when some of it was uh, erroneously reported uh, when some of it was uh, exploited in the press. Uh, it was very um, concerning to me. I'm still concerned about it because my goal always is to tell the most ethical uh, honest uh, version of the story that I can tell. And I know that, you know, it's to a flaw. I'm honest and ethical sometimes uh, to, the, to the point where it, it harms me, you know, um, and my own ambitions and things like that. So I, I needed to somehow figure out a way to impress that upon them. Uh, I, everybody was very gracious with me, even if they didn't speak to me at length. Uh, nobody, nobody attacked me or anything like that uh, verbally or, um, I think they could tell if they did their research, they could look into my other work and say, oh, you know, he's got these reviews from these big publications or or some of them may have even seen Children of the Snow on Hulu, which, you know, like it was very popular. And um, so they 
they probably had a sense that that I was not like uh, what I call hair, hairdos um, parachuting into town. <laughs> well, only, because, uh, only because it's the one thing I get to poke fun of because I'm, I'm very envious. But but uh, you, got, you got you got the little mohawk going, man. Not a lot of uh, reporters have that going. I got to ask you before we go another step further. What's what's the J for? Are you allowed to reveal that? And Jay Rubin. Yeah, J- Jason's my my government name, brother. Um, uh-huh. and, there you and, go. Uh, but, but people call me Jay. If you're wondering what to call me, people call me Jay. Ninety five percent of the time. All right, there we go. Uh, here's the link, by the way. I think. Uh, our mod Gen X granny put it up there. Uh, that is the link and we'll get it into the show summary as well. Um, you know, this case, uh, um, among all the others that we cover here, um, on STS by far, I think has garnered the most interest. What, what do you attribute that to, uh, and the global interest as well? We've got Tali joining us from Israel tonight. Thinking of you, Tali. Uh, people from literally all over the world. I'm sure I haven't seen the entire chat yet. Uh, we've got Harvey in Louisiana. Uh, Nettie, never seen this name, but we have people from all over the place. Why do you think uh, there's a global fascination with this case? Well, I think what's now there's momentum behind it, right? And so, so any anytime somebody has made a star. They're just stars because they're stars now, right? So it's the same thing with a case, I think, sometimes. But in this case, what started it, what started it was that the true crime community had learned that, and I mean, by that I mean uh, cyber sleuths in general, social media uh, page runners, uh, admins and things like that, um, YouTubers, podcasters, um, pro- produced and, and, and live podcasters as well. Um, but, uh, they were all primed to, uh, to, um, know how to follow an investigation over the last couple of years of, of learning to monetize channels and things like that. Right. So you get better at it as you go along. And there was this moment, I think like maybe not yet peak, but almost peak where lots and lots of people are really good at following investigations now, partially because, of experts like you who run figured out a way to keep your channels going and building audiences and those audiences following you and and the many others who are doing it and now all of a sudden you had millions of people in the true crime community armed with a, a pretty decent amount of knowledge at times about how investigations should work and then what happened was these four uh, students were were murdered and they looked like many in the true crime community. I think that's what happened. I think that a lot of the true crime community is is driven by um, young white kids in their twenties uh, who and and a little bit older who are become obsessed with this stuff. And these victims all of a sudden looked like them. And so the chatter the chatter was was great. Now I'm not a sociologist or whatever, but my but my um, uh, uh, what I what I perceived was happening was that and. And I think a lot of people have talked about that online as well. You know, you got four, you get four young black kids in urban Detroit killed every week. Uh, there's no chatter. Uh, and, 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 and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the victims resembled the audience. Uh, yeah. in some ways. That's an interesting that's- take. That's a very interesting, I haven't heard that before. I also, I mean, personally, I think it just has to do with the horrific nature. I mean, this is something out of like a Halloween movie, these stabbings. And it was in the middle of the night as you're, book title uh, alludes to and it it's seemingly random as we're still trying to figure out 
uh, some of the connections, which I want to ask you about. Papa Bear always watches the show. Uh, love her from Moscow, Idaho. So, uh, as I say, always a place that's near and dear to our heart. And uh, you see Jay Rubin drinking water. I'm drinking Gatorade. That's why he's lean as can be. And I need to cut the sugar out, but I'm working on it one day at a time. I'm a sugar addict. Got to stop that. Um, so you're also a private investigator. Is that right? Yeah, for the last Otherwise, 10 years. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. So let walk me through, um, and I'll come back to the private investigator um, aspect of this and how that you know helped or hurt you. But so the 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 murders happened uh, a year ago, November, and how soon before? Because the way I understand it, you basically, for all intents and purposes, you moved into Moscow to a motel room in Moscow. How soon after the murders did you land in Moscow, and what was it like when you first got there? Well, I I think it was something like it wasn't in the day, immediate days. It was about a week or something like that after, um, and that's my memory of it at the moment. Uh, but, but it, it was, uh, solemn. Uh, you know, there was, it was like, uh, if anybody's old enough to remember nine 11, when the world trade centers are, were bombed or, or to actually everybody's old enough now to know what's going on in, in uh, Israel and Gaza. Right. It's like, it's, it's, it's hard to feel anything, but just great sadness uh, and then there was some people like the family, the people obviously affected by the crimes up in Moscow felt anger, like physically affected, right? The family members, great sadness, great anger. Um, and But a lot of solemn, uh, mournful walking around the neighborhood, like when after 9-11, when people came out to to sort of look at their neighbors, they came out into the street and did you, you know, what are you thinking? What's, what are you feeling? There was a lot of that going on in the streets up there uh, around the, in the neighborhood around King road. Uh, and there was can a lot of, sort of, I'm sorry. Can you paint sort of a, uh, you know, for those of us who have not, I was actually just, I happened to be dragged to a wedding in Sun Valley. I didn't realize how long the state is. It was like an eight hour drive to, uh, to the university from where I was. And I wanted to check it out. It was too much for me, but can you just kind of paint the picture of Moscow? Moscow, it's this bucolic little town, but what what's it like there? Yeah, during the school year, there's about twenty five thousand people there. Uh, when school is out for the summer, about about a, a twelve thousand or so, maybe more leave, and um, so the town is very sleepy in the summer. Also, kind of sleepy during the school year compared to most towns. It's surrounded by mountains uh, at a distance. There is uh, the smell of that that though in the air like uh, i say in the summer in the book i say it smells like pine pine burning off the trees from the nearby forest and it does you know it, it kind of it's got that earthy uh mountain air and uh it's it's uh a few a few main areas are crowded but for the with cars because because it's a small place but for the most part you get right outside of that main downtown area of it's just a few blocks long or something and and it feels like you're in. Um, uh, it feels like you're anonymous a little bit, but you're not because everybody sees the same people uh, because there's only twenty five thousand of them, even when it's busy, right? Um, but but it's it's uh, beautiful. It's to get up there, you you pass uh, big big roiling whitewater rivers, uh, thick mountains, a lot of switchbacks. You climb to I think it's something like 5,000 feet at Whitebird Pass if you're coming from the south, which is a historic area. And you're, I mean, you're way the hell up there, man. 
and it and then you come down and you come down for for a while into the valley and and um that's not exactly how you get there but i'm saying for people who aren't from there that's the vibe you know you go way up high and you sink down low into like a, a mount, another mountain valley and it's it's just beautiful man and the people the people are so kind it's it's it, there's a lot of old school idahoans um which speaks a lot to their conservative nature uh, uh, but there's also a lot of young, uh, hipster people who go to, go to school up there, who run some of the places who are working in the coffee shops. There's a, there's a, a, a great couple of gyms there, uh, great coffee and the, and a huge LGBTQ population that, that mingles pretty freely with, with, uh, the, the right wing that's up there. There's a, it's a very Christian place, uh, but people tend to stick to themselves. They're not except for there's one small sect of Christianity that that's, that's becoming um, known for buying up the properties and trying to convert people and stuff. But, but uh, other, other than some of those things, it's in general what you would want um, from a really small town. If you were to happen to land there for a month, you feel like this is a great town. And that's what it felt like to me. I had been up there several times, but when I was actually doing my research there, I, I thought I should, I should move here. It's beautiful. You know? Yeah. Um, and I, I know, uh, and the reason I really wanted to have you on is that your focus, um, and anytime you write a book about this sort of this soon after, there's going to be some controversy, but I know your focus was really on the, uh, the, the victim's families. Uh, and that appealed to me. And I, I, I don't even think you mentioned, uh, Brian Koberger until well into the book. And we can talk about that and why, um, by the way, I agree with Meg P here. He doesn't look old enough to have a daughter who graduated from college. Uh, it's that water man, and he's a jujitsu guy, I think. So he's uh, yeah, keeping himself in uh, in good shape. But um, I am old enough. I am old enough. So when you first get to Moscow, uh, that week or so after, um, and you just start, you know, you're a private investigator, and you start to kind of feel things out. Um, and when you, you know, you realize you're going to be writing this book and you start to ask people questions and you're telling them that you're writing a book, I assume, what is the reception from the people in Moscow as you kind of begin on this journey? You know, one thing that stands out to me, is very funny. I'm going to talk to you about the people, but I want to also add this funny thing is that I talked to a major, uh, mainstream newscaster, uh, uh, correspondent, um, who, who, um, Stay away from those guys, but go ahead. <laughs> he was very he was very suspicious of me. Uh, I I was wearing my Carhartt and and you know some old old flannel and you know I wear combat boots. They're like my daily shoe. Um, I tuck them into dress pants. I leave them out over my jeans. Whatever the the occasion calls for. That's basically my shoe. And and uh, and these guys are all there in very expensive coats. A lot of people flow, flew in from New York and Canada, goose down and all that. And and that it's hey man, it's a great coat, but but they don't wear them up there in Moscow. And, and, um, but, but I, cause it's, it's costly, you know? And, um, I, <laughs> I ended up talking to the guy. He was very suspicious of me. He thought maybe I was fanboying him or something. And, um, he, he asked me what I was doing. I told my writer, uh, I told him I was working on a book and I told him one of the things that I was thinking was most important to write about, which to me was how social media blew up this case. And, and, um, and this was ongoing at the time. We were only a week or two in when I was talking to him and he said, that's really interesting. And I'm going to answer this question in the Midwest person. Yeah. 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 I, I want to, yeah, go ahead. But, but, um, but he thought that's, he said, that's really interesting. And then the nice, the very next night his station was, was all about 
what I was telling him I was writing a book about. I learned one very valuable lesson. Um, don't trust these major these major uh, media correspondents because they're there on a corporate dime and they have to report back information. If they don't, they get canned, right? So yeah. everything, everything is a source of information. And if I was working on something as well, I should stop talking to those people at the time. I'll tell you, <laughs> I was in that world. It's the most cutthroat business that there is. And you've got to produce. And there's a lot of pressure to produce. And people can cross the line. So uh, yeah. you took I away a good lesson. Yeah. yeah. So let, let me just tell people uh, Midwest here says, why write a book when we don't even know exactly what has happened, especially with the gag order confused. Uh, this has sort of been, you know, one of the rubs against the book coming out this early. Your response, Jay? Well, the rub, let's be clear, the rub against the book coming out this early is not from uh, literary reviewers who have reviewed the book or anything like that, like in the main main you know, publications that have, that have reviewed the book. Um, so I, I appreciate that the, the, the sort of the rub is from a confused public sometimes like mid, like Midwest is asking. Um, I never intended to write a book that had, that included uh, the outcomes of a, of a potential prosecution. I'm much more interested in writing about how communities repair uh, after the visitation of, of this kind of violence what happened uh, in social media from a sociological perspective, um, how victims' families deal with the rest of their lives, how they find hope um, in situations like this to move on, if they can at all, um, who the victims were, why it matters to the world that we should keep paying attention to, you know, why, why we should keep paying attention to these types of cases in general, especially this one, until it's solved. But mostly, yeah, the big question is, for me was, how do communities repair themselves after the visitation of this kind of violence? And that's what I was interested in writing about. Um, it, you know, I, it, it doesn't matter to me at the end of the day um, in certain types of books, whether or not there's a conclusion to the case that was associated with the content the writer is writing about. The, the, it, it, I, I like to ask people, when do you write about a, a lengthy war? So let's say the Iraq war or something that goes on for years. Do you, do you write about it in the first days, in the, in the a year into it, two years into it, or do you wait until it's at, it's concluded? You write about it the whole time because people want the information and books add context and texture to, to the things we hear in the media. So it allows people who have followed it this far to have, to have it all in one place that's contextualized as well. We think as viewers of media that we know the whole story, but it's impossible because you're seeing little clips here and little clips there and little clips there. Books have a purpose along the way for all of these kinds of lengthy processes. And, and that's, that's where I was, what I was taking part in, you know, when I wrote it. Yeah. And that's interesting. So you just mentioned that a big part of it was seeing how the community healed from this. My assumption is that they're still healing, but what did you find out in that regard uh, in terms of the people, uh, you know, in Moscow, Idaho, uh, we'll get to the victims in a moment because I want to hear that story as well. But as it pertains to the community, um, I imagine this has got to be a really long healing process, right? Absolutely, uh, and and that I think that I, I I did my utmost to chronicle the the real beauty of the people of Moscow, the sadness that they that they were experiencing, the grief, the anguish. Um, and then, and the, and, it, and especially about the Moscow Police Department, the very, very hard work that they put in, even when uh, 
mainstream media outlets were saying that they probably that the Moscow Police Department couldn't handle it or whatever they were saying. Uh, the amount of work that was put into it by Chief Fry and the rest of the, the police force, the Idaho State Police, the FBI, everybody who was involved, I chronicle all of that as well. And um, let me jump and- in there real quick on that note. So, uh, you know, this is uh, short enough in the past uh, that I remember this quite well. We covered this and and the the world was basically just coming down hard on the Moscow PD for not catching this guy. And they caught him relatively quickly for a case like this. Again, I referenced Rachel Moore earlier and her the suspect uh, in that horrific murder is still on the loose uh now coming up on three months uh uh this coming november 5th but um you think that was completely unfair what was the reaction in moscow to the fact that the people uh globally were you know throwing daggers at the pd they they hated it for the most part they hated it uh some some people like uh some of the family members who wanted answers were glad that the attention was on the case for obvious reasons uh, but what? But but most of the community hated that that uh, these these carpetbaggers or t- you know tourists were coming in and and ragging on their town and their police force and stuff like that. Um, what what I, you go back to the cutthroat uh, of of corporate media thing and 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 there's a reason for the throwing daggers. You can say, look, all these people were, were thrown in here on the, on the corporate dime and they had to have information, right? And so they're forcing the hand of the police department to give them information. Well, the police department does what police departments do, which is not give information because uh, that's not how you solve investigations in the most, in most of the time in the early days, depending on the case, right? If they're looking for a white Hyundai, then it becomes different. Hey, we're looking for a white Hyundai. Tell us where it is, right? Um, but if but they're not going to give out all the details of the crime scene because then then it's disseminated across all major media platforms throughout the world, and the killer or killers who they're looking for uh, knows what they have on them or not, right? But the media kept hounding and hounding and hounding because there were so many of them fighting for little kernels. So there, you know, if there was just one person following the case, they could have been more patient. But there were 100 people there at any given time having to come up with answers for, for the people who were, who were feeding them. And, and that becomes problematic. So they, they put a ton of pressure on the cops. And the cops, uh, they didn't have to, but they spent a lot of time giving whatever they could. They updated their website almost daily. They did multiple press conferences. I mean, this is just a small town in North Idaho. And, and, and they're lucky if they'd ever seen one or two newscasters come through, right? To see a hundred of them in one place, it was just mind-boggling. It was frustrating. They took up all the parking spots. Yeah, we know, always stuff. do that. We just park wherever we want. But um, kind of rotten people, us media people. But um, <laughs> what, what what about uh, the investigation? You know, I know you're a private investigator. It's got to be ongoing still. Do we know how many full-time detectives are working the case currently, and and how, um, you know the 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 activity as it pertains to the investigation is, is, is it moving forward as much today as it was, let's say three, four, five months ago? Well, when you say moving forward, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I heard a, I, yeah, yes. And no, I think the police very much believe that they got their guy and the evidence that they presented, even though it's just a scratch in the table, uh, 
is was enough, even just that little scratch in the probable cause affidavit for, for Brian Koberger's arrest appears to have been enough to make a case. And I go back to the urban areas where I grew up in Detroit. Um, you know, if, if they had as much information on Brian Koberger as they had on, if they, if they had that on just some random black guy in the city where I grew up, they would have already, you know, prosecuted him. Like, but because that's just a fact, that's just a fact of our criminal justice system, which is unfortunate and heartbreaking, but it, to me anyway, but, but because there's so many eyeballs on this case, it's dragging out, right? That's the only reason it's dragging out because everything they have so far would have convicted, would, would have already gone to prosecution and convicted somebody else maybe. But, but that said, yeah, of course, they're diligently still working the case. Um, although I did hear uh, a story about uh, the prosecutor uh, the night before up in Moscow. I don't know the truth of this. I heard it secondhand, but the prosecutor up, the, up in Moscow the night before uh, one of the hearings uh, was playing in his band at a local bar or something. So, so I think it sounds like they're confident. You know? Yeah, it sounds it sounds that way. Uh, I guess I'm, not, be- I'm not saying people should never have fun in their lives or anything like that. I'm just saying it, yeah. it was the night before a hearing, and it sounds like they're confident. Mm. Uh, by the way, shout out to Ashley. She just we have the best guest, better community. Ashley gifted five memberships. I saw Jory. Shout out to you for that. Uh, I was just going to get to this question selfishly while we're on the topic of books. I never heard the pre-sale date for your book, Joel. Don't have one yet, but uh, it's going to be probably December, January. And as soon as I do, Carmen and I are going to be on a media tour and I will let you guys know for sure. And you're probably going to hate me after a couple of shows because I'm going to be mentioning it. Uh, That book is a labor of love for me and I want to get it out there because I want to memorialize my dear mother who thankfully is still with us, but she has important things to say. Um, Papa Bear shown or reminding us that next year uh, will be the one year anniversary of this tragedy. Yes, it will be. And we'll definitely do a special show on that day. Uh, Jay Rubin, I'm just curious about your book process, because as you just heard, I just uh, got edits back from my editor and I returned those edits. There's one more round. Um, I got a book deal. It's a story about my mom's Holocaust survival, plus um, her advice about both life and death matters. Um, and it's going to be out, but, uh, writing a book has been one of the hardest, but also one of the most rewarding things that I've done. I'm already thinking about the next one, uh, as much as it took the life out of me. Uh, what was your process like? Um, did you collect all the information? Did you sit in a room and hash out some sort of, I see some crazy diagrams behind you there. Um, you know, how did you, how do how do you work your process of writing a book? You know, I, I've been writing for uh, 30 years now, uh, taking it seriously for 30 years, uh, writing, uh, if not daily, weekly, uh, studied writing as an undergrad, got my MFA in writing, wrote screenplays, wrote documentary films, wrote several novels that couldn't get published, wrote, uh, wrote uh, The Kill Jar, which was successful, wrote a few films that were successful, wrote some television that was successful, and then um, got this book. I'm late. I'm loading this up to say that uh, this was by far uh, the, the most difficult for me to write um, because the timeline was so quick. The turnaround time, I wrote the first draft in four months, and then I, and then I was able to edit for two months after that. And there were several passes from the editing 
uh, department at HarperCollins where like you're pointing out where you go through edits, line edits, er look, errors and things like that. And um, there, and, and because the, the turnaround time was so quick, there are still uh, uh, half a dozen errors in the book, the typos or things like that, that somebody just recently pointed out to me. So we're going to fix those. But I mean, it was fast, man. I, I was writing 14, 15. I was, I was in this office 14, 15 hours a day. Um, and I was writing as I was learning. Uh, it, it was basically, um, a lot of it was chronicling the information that's out there, but in a reasonable way with texture and context. If something happened in Moscow, you know, we hear on the news and said, so and such happened, something happened in Moscow, Idaho, in North Idaho. That's all you hear. Well, I went, you know, I spent a lot of time going into depth about what those areas are like. Um, what the people are like, like, like you mentioned, what the victims were like, what all that. So, so it's like, I could take a little morsel of something and build on it to give texture and context. Um, and I was just, um, learning as I went, like a lot of people, but I also was doing a lot of interviews. Uh, I conducted interviews with some of the family members. Uh, I conducted interviews with, uh, a lot of the neighbors and things like that. Um, uh, Friends of uh, Brian Koberger, the, sus the suspect who's been arrested, um, uh, friends of other people, you know, whatever, whatever it is, lots of interviews, lots of also using my, my data, my PI databases to uh, research things that maybe aren't accessible to common, common people what, without that. What, what made you decide, uh, what made you decide to become a private investigator on top of being an author? It was an accident. I was writing the kill jar and I was going to a local coffee shop here, big city coffee, downtown Boise. And I was bringing murder files with me every day. And I was spending hours at this coffee shop, uh, reviewing, you know, murder files and autopsy reports and whatever. And, and, uh, I kept running into a woman at a coffee shop who was also doing her work from the coffee shop. And she kept asking me all these questions. I didn't know it, but she was a private investigator and she was planning to poach me, uh, for her company. And that's what happened. Uh, after after running into her four or five times with my files and stuff and having conversations, she told me she's a PI. She said I should come work for her, and that's what I did. Well, how so, how long does it take to become a private investigator? Well, uh, I worked for her company, and they they if you go work for a company, they have the credentials, and you work under them, so you get their access to certain databases and their vetting, so to speak. Mm -hmm. To work on your own as a PI, it's different in every state, but here you need something like, you know, X thousands of hours working for another, you know, under other, under, under other credentials first. It's sort of like how you become a plumber. You work for a, like an a apprenticeship. Plumber. Yeah, that's basically what it is. Here in Idaho, uh, it's unusual, but you only need licensing in certain cities. There's not statewide licensing. It's unusual for the country, but not unusual for Idaho. In Idaho, you can pretty much do whatever you want. In fact, um, bail bondsmen can just kick down your door and take take you up, take you out of your living room. Uh, there's still laws like that here. <laughs> um, so um, there, there's not a lot of credentialing for a lot of people. But I happened to work for this very large investigative company uh, for five years before doing it on my own. Wow. 
Uh, Tali from Israel has a question. During the process of writing the book, did you find any new details about this case, something that made you think differently from the perception people have about this case? What about that? By the way, before you get there, uh, Papa Bear, Moscow is a very close community that still has a small town vibe with vibrant university. We care for and about each other. It's quite beautiful. It's progressive, especially uh, in the state of Idaho. So there you go. Um, but what about what do you find out that's new in the book? Give us uh, a kernel of something that people have not necessarily heard about. Well, there's a lot of information from inter- interviews that's new. I should say a lot. There's some information from interviews that stand out to me. Um, one of the interviews I did that was to me uh, powerful was talking to Dylan Mortensen's father, one of the one of the, one of the survivors, Dylan Mortensen, her father. There's information from him in there about how she's what she's up to, how she's been doing. Also, very interesting was um, I spoke to um, Brian Koberger, the main suspect who's been arrested and awaiting trial. Uh, I spoke to his uh, very close. Uh, she claims was his best friend in junior high and early high school. They rode the bus together every day. She gave me a lot of insight into him about um, uh, some, some of the harsh uh, conditions for him growing up uh, in, in their school system. Um, a lot of bullying and lots of things with him. It's, it's to be expected in some ways because he was awkward even then, uh, apparently, um, and because of his d- dealing with this visual snow stuff that people know about on, on the internet certain, in certain areas in certain rooms on the internet, people talk a lot about his visual snow, which is that, that uh, fuzz, that haze and all kinds of things that you can experience from visual snow symptoms. And I think about that um, when I really hone in on that, how difficult that must be for somebody with that to interact with people and become, and to pick up on social cues or even to learn them. It's like looking through smeared sunglasses. You know, you take them off and you wipe your shirt over the lenses so you can see better. But if you have this visual snow stuff, there's no easy fix like that. And it'd be so difficult to try to interact and pick up social cues uh, when you're when you're you know, a teenager with that kind of stuff. And so, of course, you don't learn mating rituals properly. You don't learn anything properly in the social realm. That was really interesting. To, um, so it was interesting to talk to his his friend. If this if you're at, if your uh, question is if the if the. Uh, I don't know what to say. I was going to say caller, but if it's not a caller. But if the question is, um, what new fact is out there? Um, well, the facts that I gained about the actual like uh, crime scene, for instance, those are all from the probable cause affidavit from the police, from other police documents, the prosecution documents, and stuff. Um, I I don't know what your what your follower knows yet. So I don't know how to exactly answer that question. We'll we'll wind down that road a little bit. Carrie H here says your book was very uh, well done. This an interesting comment from M. Morgan. I'm friends with Zana's mom. I'm keeping my heart open uh, for her as she heals. Uh, Please tell her that we are thinking of her. Um, She has an open invite uh, on our show. Anytime surviving the survivor at gmail.com. I would, it would be an honor to speak with her. Um, but please at the very least send her our, uh, well wishes. Um, do you speak to the parents of any of the victims? Uh, if so, what's that like? This must be the COE. She must be back, uh, because she popped this question in herself. Um, you mentioned, um, DM's dad, uh, Dylan's dad. She of course is one of two, uh, of the surviving victims. Let, let's, kind of bear down on that for a minute. Uh, they've got to be going through hell and back. And I've read a couple of accounts uh, from 
at least one other person that's interviewed one of the surviving roommates uh, fathers. Um, how is Dylan doing uh, today? Um, do you still keep in touch with the father and, and how was it uh, to speak to him? Well, there's a lot there. Uh, Dylan is, uh, from, from what I understand, is is healing through, um, uh, has help in that process, like from the spiritual community, uh, and is staying out of the limelight uh, for good for good reason. Um, uh, I I want to I want to address the families in general because that question ties into Dylan Mortensen's dad. Um, none of them said to me, yes, let's sit down with you and I'll tell you everything I can for the next 12 hours. It was actually very hard to get a hold of every everybody. Uh, by the time I was actually writing the book, they had been bombarded by all major media networks across the world, basically, trying to get this story from them. Their phones, some of them turned, you know, uh, turned off their phones. Some of them uh, got new numbers. Some of that, it was just chaos for them, as you can imagine. And by the time I was doing it, I had to send multiple text messages and phone calls and emails and DMs in their social media. I mean, I was hitting them from all angles and, and because, and it's not because I was trying to be a, 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 a letter or whatever you call it. I was, tr I was trying, I was trying to give them an opportunity to add to, to the book, whatever they wanted to tell me should have that opportunity to be in the book, right? Like it would, the worst case scenario would be, I write this book and I never contact those family members. Um, it would be a, a horrific tragedy, abusive almost. Um, I wrote the book knowing that I would contact them, but it was hard as hell to do that emotionally, spiritually for me and for them as well. When I finally did get, you know, they're in the middle of their morning um, and, and, and there's absolutely no reason for them, some some of them, to want to to want to talk to me. Um, but I did talk to um, uh, the, the the mothers of two of the victims. Uh, I talked to a very close friend of another of the victims, and I talked to. Um, Can you tell us uh, which uh, of the two victims' moms you spoke to? Yeah, well, I talked to a, I talked to uh, I talked to Ethan Chapin's mom. I talked to I talked to um, uh, Kayla Gonzalez's mom. I talked to uh, Maddie Mogan's dad. I talked to Dylan Mortensen's dad, and I talked to um, a very close friend of the family of Zana Carnoto. Now, these were not like I said; these were not four-hour conversations. I mean, I was catching them in the middle of their grieving you know, on the phone, Dylan Mortensen's dad, actually, I sat with him in his living room because he lives just a couple of miles from me. Um, Where, I, did, I, did any of them give you a, a very cold uh, response? You know, why are you contacting me? That sort of thing. All of them were very gracious with me and didn't have to be. Uh, they were, they were kind. They were obviously hurting they were initially confused about what I was up to. After explaining it to them, they were they were open to talking to me as a human being. Uh, they were people who you could tell would 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 be great people to have in my community. You know, they were just good people, and they treated me fairly and graciously. And no, they didn't they didn't answer my texts all the time, or my phone calls, or my emails, or my DMs. But they, when when we finally were in contact, they were gracious and kind, and and uh, I really appreciated that. 
uh, it's it's my ultimate my ultimately like I would not feel good about my life in general if I were somebody who um, uh, didn't care about the feelings of people in the midst of their tragedy. Uh, I'm not that guy, uh, and and I feel like um, very grateful that they understood that and and were gracious enough to let me walk away from those conversations, not feeling like a tourist in their suffering. Well, I got to tell you, I felt, you know, to be totally upfront, a little trepidation about having you on, especially having you on solo because we were a panel style show. Um, but I think it's important, um, you know, and you obviously, you obviously have credentials uh, with your prior work, um, but I think it's important to hear uh, information, particularly about a story of this magnitude. But in speaking to you now, um, you seem like a pretty wholesome dude, a kind of a spiritual guy. I, I, you know, we've never met until tonight and um, you sound genuine to me. And uh, one of the things I pride myself on is being a good uh, judge of character. And, uh, you know, it's obviously hard to tell a, a lot about a person when you're meeting them uh, through a stream yard interview here on YouTube. But, um, you know, kudos to you for doing the hard work because I know it is a, a very, um, tedious process since I just went through it myself. Um, one of the things I found interesting, you don't mention Brian Kober Koberger, I don't think until, until what page of the book, like it's a while in, correct? Yeah, it's a while in, I don't remember what page either. And, and then I go away from that for quite a bit. And then I, I don't really get in, even after the mention, I don't really get much into him until let's say the, 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 the second third of the book or something like that. Was that intentional? I mean, did you do that on purpose? Well, it was intentional for, for multiple reasons. One of them was just for narrative structure of the book. It, you know, it was like, okay, give a little bit about what's going on, then go backwards and tell the stories of who these people are. Right. And then, um, so part of that was just structural. Like he, he didn't have much, his background didn't have much of a place until after we get to the background of, of the victims. Right. Till we know who they are before the tragedy that happened happened and so but but mostly though or, or i wouldn't say mostly but equally i i didn't want the focus of the book to be on brian koberger for starters he's not been convicted of any crimes what i what i wanted to do was tell the story of what the police and prosecution propose brian koberger did and and that's very fair to tell that story um and to give context into who this uh, alleged perpetrator is um, as well. When I talk about the background, I talk about his family, I talk about his schooling and all that stuff and, and the area where he grew up in the Poconos. Um, uh, but that all comes later. And it's, 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 I think it's important also, look, do I believe that Brian Koberger committed these crimes? Well, what I believe is that the police have no reason to lie about the evidence that they have. Um, it would do them no good to have just pinned this DNA and the and the forensic data that they have and the vehicle stuff on somebody it does them no good. Um, that's not what they're after in this. They're after finding a, a real suspect and arresting a real suspect and prosecuting a real suspect, right? So I believe that the evidence that the police have is not falsified. So therefore, I believe that the case against Brian Koberger looks pretty bad. Um, that said, he's also a human being. And his family are human beings and, and they need to be treated as such. And I wanted to not just throw him out there as, as some perp who, you know, needs to be, 
you know, lined up and shot. In Idaho, we have the death penalty by firing squad now if we want it. And um, did, know, you, did you reach out to Brian's uh, parents or sister? Yeah, I reached out to everybody. So it, it, uh, just for background. And yeah, real quick, by the way, Lorna just ordered your book. So there you go. But go ahead, Jay Rubin. Thank you, thank you Lorna. Uh, let me know what you think of it. Um, but I reached everybody who I who is associated with this case. I reached out to a number of times. I did not end up talking to anybody in Bethany Funk's family um, because – I couldn't. I mean, I tried everything in my power. I I called their workplaces. I called. I mean, I was a real nuisance. And yeah, she's one. Of, I, she's one of the other surviving victims. But go yeah, ahead. Finally, I finally I I I I gave up. You know, um, same thing with Koberger's family. Um, but it's very simple for me to get phone numbers and things like that. You know, I have this database now, and you know, access that other people don't necessarily have. And I, and I was calling the right numbers is what I'm getting at. I was sending the right emails to the right addresses. I was doing all kinds of footwork. Um, but I could not get anybody on Koberger's side to talk and for, for good reason. I tried to get Brian Koberger to talk to me. I sent him a copy of my first book, the kill jar, um, in the, in the jail where he's at. And, um, Basically saying, look, I, I'm writing this book. I'd like to get to know you a little bit. If you want to know more about me, you should read The Kill Jar. There's a ton of biographical stuff in it. Um, that book is half about me, basically. It's about it's a memoir of my hunt. So it's, it's about yeah. my childhood, my family life, things like that. And I sent that to Brian Koberger and said, you know, if you read this book and you feel like you should talk to me, let's, you know, I'd love to talk to you. But of course, it's inadvisable for his attorney probably, you know, screens all that stuff and you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, that is, that is tough. Uh, this is a, an odd comment, but it sounds like this person knows you a little bit. Uh, um, hi, Jay Appleman. We worked together a million year, years ago at WF and ATX in specialty, and you were not in the right line of work back then. Glad to see you got where you're going. No idea what that's Bandy, about. Well, Bandy, now I don't know who this person is, but I did, but I, but I'll bet you I would if I saw Mandy's face in real time because, because I did work at Whole Foods in, in Austin. Uh, the, it's the original Whole Foods, and I was working in the cheese department, which they called specialty. And I remember, I remember serving Sandra Bullock uh, 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 goat little goat cheeses soaked in olive oil. Uh, that was a highlight of my time there. There you go. That's a small world. Hey, it's hard to get a job at Whole Foods. I know a couple of guys that uh, tried, believe it or not, not myself, but uh, they didn't get in. Um, so one of the people that we don't hear, you know, we we hear. Um, quite a bit about Kaylee's family and from Kaylee's family, but Madison Mogan, I think you said you spoke to her dad. Is that right? What, what yeah. was that like? Uh, ben Mogan seems like a really great guy. Uh, he's in a lot of pain, like everybody else associated with that case, the family members, I mean, and um, he seemed like a really sweet guy. I know he's got a little bit of a troubled past. I wrote about it a little bit because it's part of the story. It's part about how, about how these kids grew up and stuff, but but man, he is uh, was just really kind to me, and um, you know, people change, and 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 I don't know who he was 20 years ago or whatever, but he sure seems like a great guy right now, and you could tell in some of those videos on of him in the memorials as well. You know, he's up. He, there's some memorial stuff that's online. Um, you know, he 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 seemed like a guy who really, really, really loved his daughter and was heartbroken. And of course, most people would be, um, but he, he was very kind to me. He was very nice. He had a very soft spoken demeanor. He was working two jobs. He was going to counseling, stuff like that. When I was talking to him and, um, you know, he seemed like a guy that I would, that I would, 
I mean, all these people really, to be honest with you, most of them, most of them are people who I would probably associate with, you know, just walking around town. Like I'm a guy who hangs out on the corner, you know, I'm that guy. And I talk to strangers and I talk to people and I see, I, you know, if you're, if you've been in Boise for more than three or four years, you've seen me walking around because that's all, that's what I do. I work in my office and I take walks and, that's another reason this guy's lean. Uh, look at this. Hey, Mona, do you think you look leaner? I think the chair is making me look leaner than you think I'm leaner. But maybe. Uh, do you think that's a good trick? Actually, do you think he actually had visual snow? We're talking about Koberger, or was it self-diagnosed? Do we know if it was uh, diagnosed by a medical professional? Well, he claims it was diagnosed by a medical professional because he talks about being prescribed things for it. So, my sense is that. Whether he, you know, whether he was, whether he was um, studied by Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic or anything like that, I don't know anything about that. But my sense is that the doctor that he went to said he's got visual snow, and they prescribed him things for that. You know, um, and those things, though, I write about it briefly in the book. I think it's still in there. It may have may have been cut in, in an edit, but I think it's still in there. <laughs> um, it, it happens so fast. You know how these edits go. And it's like, well, you got to cut out this paragraph because because this chapter is- By the way, pretty- I'm in your boat. They had me write this book in four months and uh, the edit process was about two and a half, three months. And then I just returned the first line of edits, not to bore everyone, but- uh, Work. I'm, ex- it's I'm expecting work. it's a lot of work and I'm expecting um, uh, a lot of errors. It's tough to catch things with the you I, know just your eye, but- it um, is. Uh, but that's, but it's still in there. What I was going to say is that the, it is still in there now that I'm remembering the, the 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 medications that are prescribed for this also curiously have some of the same side effects that have some side effects that mimic the problem. So it's very it's very strange. It's like saying like, hey, I'm going to prescribe you headache medicine, but one out of five times you take it, you're going to get a headache. Like yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> that's kind of what his medication is it part of it is like seizures and things like that are the side effects or, you know, whatever. And it's like, that's part of what visual snow actually causes sometimes as well. You know, whatever the side effects were, I can't remember, but it was very similar to that. Uh, Black widow are coming to us from the Republic of Ireland. She looks so unhappy in that picture. Well, serious, I should say, I like this man. Uh, and then hey, Mona says, yeah, I love that. It's not about the alleged perpetrator. Meg P. Jay Rubin is a great guest. Good get. I love the empathy he has. It shows. There you go. Um, anything about the victims, because that's obviously our focus, that that kind of blew you away or made you pause for a moment where you're like, wow, this is incredible or amazing. What I found really interesting was getting into how they became close with one another. So um, the the how Maddie and Kaylee became best friends to me is really interesting. Um, Maddie was sort of from that broken home sort of thing. Right. And which look, I am too. There's no judgment there. There's all kinds of people, um, come from that. Uh, but Kaylee's home was sort of this landing pad for her, um, a feeling of security. And that's kind of how she, she integrated with them. She became there. They always call her like another daughter. Well, there was a reason because she was there all the time. Um, and I'm looking at this person's comment. We'll talk about that. But yeah. um, but but I love I loved getting into the relationships early on, and also how Zana and Ethan found each other, and what Zana's life was like, and what Ethan's was like. You know, Ethan came from a very financially privileged 
uh, upbringing. You know, they have all kinds of uh, life experiences in their family and and uh, big houses and things like that. And Zana came from kind of a, a really rough thing with, with her mom's situation. Uh, a lot of people know about it. I won't spend my time uh, recounting uh, some of the problems in Zana's ch- early childhood. But for Zana to, and then her father sort of picked up the pieces and and provided a good uh, living and, 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 and home for her. But Zana's background, early background, was um, from this sort of troubled experience a little bit. And then to sort of integrate into Ethan's like picture perfect world, they're like the Kennedys or like Eddie Bauer magazine uh, people, you know, like um, for Zana to sort of slide into that, it was so interesting to see. Um, uh, and the great love that Ethan and Zana seem to have for each other and the great love that Maddie and Kaylee had for each other. Um, all of that stuff was really interesting for me to find out. There were no surprises except for, um, I guess I would say, some of the wealth in that area that I hadn't really paid attention to before. Uh, a lot of people on the East and West coasts talk about um, Idaho as being mostly like backwoods up North or whatever. And, and that's not the case. There's a lot of income uh, flowing through the North parts of Idaho. And several of these families, ha- a couple of these families had a lot of that. And that was interesting to find out. I mean, Ethan's family, they're not from North Idaho, but they have a get a second home in North Idaho. And so they're they're very much connected to North Idaho in that way. They're from Washington, but they have a second home in the state here. And that second home is you know three times as big as my home. Uh, and, and it's and it's like there. I was surprised to find some of that only because I hadn't explored the wealth in North Idaho much. Where Ethan worked um, uh, for su- in the summer, um, you know, it's a place of privilege. He worked at a very privileged sort of resort where all kinds of people had all kinds of money and all kinds of houses and all kinds of, and that was very interesting to discover. I didn't know that much about that part of North Idaho. Um, so that was fun to find out about because uh, it was, it was, um, it was a world I didn't know existed and exploring that sometimes is like, uh, I said fun, but it, it, it can be You're like, what, what? Every time I turned around and looked at, at uh, uh, the world that they existed in up there, Ethan's family, especially, I was like, "Holy cow!" You know, there's yeah. a, a lot, a lot, that, and, and as well as the Gonzalez family. You know, they have a beautiful home on good acreage, t- taking uh, international trips all the time, and things like that. And you didn't expect that from the early reports about these kids, or once when they were initially killed, and all the reports came out. Um, it was just like North Idaho students, which everybody thinks is backwoods. All right. But Digging deeper, it was like very interesting to find out their their economic status, so to speak, or whatever, social class or whatever. Yeah. Um, Anna Lissette here. Uh, police found his DNA on a knife sheath. Now it's up to the defense to say if his knife was stolen, sold at a yard sale, left behind at a party, etc. cetera. Uh, how damning is this particular piece of evidence, do you think, Jay? Well, uh, Anna, Anna Lissette is not wrong by any means, and that's what they're going to say. Uh, they're going to say also maybe that you know somebody planted it there or that it was left behind in some way or whatever or it was yeah stolen or whatever. Um, but but and that's very it's it's possible it's possible. But given the other stacking up of evidence, um, Morgan, I agree with you. How hard they lived and loved life. She says um, I loved how hard they lived and loved life. Absolutely, absolutely, I loved that as well as well. Um, but given 
given the other evidence against against Koberger that the police have presented, you know, his cell phone stuff, which doesn't put him inside the house, but puts him in the area multiple times and the hours of which that was happening and the hours of which his phone was turned off after the murders and around the time of the murders and after, um, given all that and his background with all these women from junior high, all young girls from junior high and then women through college, uh, uh, so many call outs of him, like being what they call creepy or whatever, um, given the details around his studies at the time surrounding the times of the murders, given the details about meaning, um, meaning that uh, he was basically tanking in his PhD program. There's a lot being said about the fact that he's a PhD student in criminology. Well, let's be clear. He was a couple of months into his PhD program in criminology. He was not about to graduate. He was not excelling. He got into the program from all the way across the country. He moved out to, to, to uh, uh, Washington State to be in the program at nearby Washington State University. He was in the program. And as soon as he was on his own, he started tanking. He was getting bad reviews from students. He was getting bad reviews from professors. We know now that he was terminated for cause from uh, uh, before before his arrest, um, he, he was being admonished all the time. He, he was just not doing well. So there's a lot being made about, oh, he was this genius PhD student. It doesn't take a genius to get into a PhD program. All it takes is getting your master's degree and having relatively decent grades. And you can get into a PhD program. And, and the one in Washington is a pretty good one, but there are pretty good ones everywhere. I would not be surprised to find out that he was rejected from multiple programs and got into this one went and wasn't doing well. I mean, that's the thing. He wasn't doing well in his program. And um, yeah, that's an so, interesting distinction there. Yeah. Yeah. And he was only a couple of months into it when the murders happened. And I believe that um, what I'm getting at is that a lot of people say, well, Brian Kober is too smart to leave a knife sheath behind. Well, I don't think so at all because lots of smart people make, you know, prisons are full of smart people. Like there's a lot of mistakes made by a lot of smart people who are driven by something that is not intellect-based. And in the, in the heat of passion, in the middle of committing a crime, all kinds of things happen. And he was inquiring about that, uh, you know, months earlier on his, his Reddit questionnaire that he posted online asking for criminals to participate in a survey about what they went through at the times of commission of their crimes, um, adrenaline-based things, emotion-based things, what were you feeling, how was the experience, you know, and a lot of that you could, you know, it's allegedly part of his master's thesis from DeSales, where he was getting his master's. Um, but interestingly enough, months later, if he if he did these murders, he made all these mistakes. And so a lot, the defense will claim he's too smart. He wouldn't have made these mistakes. Right. Um, right. But, you know, a defense has to claim something. And so I'm not, I'm not a believer that his DNA just ended up on a knife sheet that somebody maybe another friend of the of uh, uh, of the victims owned or something like that because of all this other stuff that was going on in his life but um but your 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 person i think i forget her name anna lease maybe Lissette, asked it. anna Lissette, Lissette, yeah okay. um she might, william, she might be right yeah william m keep my girl roxy in your prayers she's an amazing dog she's almost 13 and not doing well breaking my heart there's nothing tougher than that so i've got Mabel Rose right there. She passed away at 17. But uh, William, think of you, man. That is never easy. Patty David uh, ordered the book. Thank you, Joel, from Syracuse, New York. I just 
C-O-E, whatever you put up there, put back up. Look at this, Copper Horse from New Jersey, the great state of Jersey, my home state, just gifted. Look at this, 50 Surviving the Survivor memberships. That's unbelievable. Thank you, Copper Horse, for doing that. Uh, appreciate it. Again, I always say best guests, better community. You're not going to get a better true crime community than this. Uh, there you go, COE right in that. Um, so one of the questions kind of that's up in the air right now is, did Brian Koberger have any connections uh, in any way to any of the victims? Um, did any of your investigative leads uh, shed some light on this? Well, besides the the things that we know are that that are speculated on or that or and or that come from reliable news sources like was it 2020 or dateline i can't remember that reported uh that 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 they had gotten information that the the dms that he was sending to the victims were real that that you know if let's back up and say in, in early in the case people said that that he had dm'd the victims right but then there was no proof of that or whatever because the cops couldn't talk. But those original reports came from allegedly from investigators related to the case. And and um, and we can assume that that happened because uh, people with access to those Instagram accounts immediately, like their family or whatever, gave that information over. That said, later we had like 2020 or whatever it was, maybe Dateline, I can't remember which one, um, uh, saying that they had confirmation from an investigator that close to the case that those DMs were real. Okay. Well, let's back up for just a second and say, have we gotten, has it gotten so bad in mainstream media that we can't even trust 2020 or Dateline anymore? Um, Because if that's the case, I throw my hands up. To me, there are certain, certain media sources that we can still trust sometimes, right? And then there are some that we can trust all the time. And I feel like if I'm watching a Dateline or 2020 episode, I should be able to trust that they vetted those sources, that they vetted their information. Or if I'm reading a Wall Street Journal article, I should be able to trust that the reporter vetted that information, right? So um, some of that, I believe, is vetted and accurate. Some of the things about the links, okay? I'm just backing up now to say one other thing. We don't have to have strong connection to a victim for a perpetrator to have flown off the handle and committed a crime like this because a lot of people kill for uh, what's called revenge killings. And revenge killings are not always like, you killed my brother, now I'm killing you. Revenge killings often come from from people who are murderous, uh, from feelings of shame or resentment or rejection. It could be very simply that Brian Koberger even, or any perpetrator, said something as, 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 as banal as, I like your sweater. And, and one of the girls gave him a dirty look, right? And the process of shame and guilt or whatever starts in, in a perpetrator's mind, spiraling through the years and years and years that had happened a million times before. And how this person can never freaking get it straight with women. And, you know, this happens. Like, like a true connection that people are searching for, like, oh, he was friends with them or he sold them weed or he communicated with them in a dating app or he whatever. That doesn't have to have been for him to feel the rage that he might have felt in the commission of these crimes. 
like it's you know a, an awkward person with a with a murderous mentality scorned enough times uh can have outbursts over just very little we see it all the time in the streets you know you stepped on my shoe like in the spike lee movie uh do the right thing and it starts a riot basically this happens all the time in in, in urban areas over feelings of respect because you don't have money you don't have power you don't have goods what you have is your respect and that and and in urban areas lots of times that's what people fight over right and for good reason because that's all they have and when somebody disrespects them they have to take back that respect in some way i'm not saying good i said good reason i mean for for a logical for some logical reason within their paradigm and and within the paradigm of murderers it's the same thing like Look, uh, all it took was five seconds of interaction for somebody and, and it, all it might have taken and, and that could have been the catalyst. You know, we don't know and we, won't, we probably won't even know because he's going to argue so much that it wasn't him that we might never really get the whole story. Yeah. Time will tell uh, if there is a trial. Uh, hopefully we'll find out more at the trial. Uh, Teresa says, hi, can you tell me, is your book going to be on Audible? Thank you. Uh, any plans to... It's it's uh I don't know it's already out on Audible I think I mean I know there's an audio book is an audio doesn't Audible carry everything uh, they should if it is uh, an audio yeah. book so you guys can check that out and uh, Irene says what an amazing talk tonight looking forward to reading this book loved uh, STS Nation so one of the things that was curious we'll go a few more minutes and we'll start to wrap it up but um you know, I don't remember the exact wording or the phrasing but when Brian Koberger was arrested he reportedly said. Uh, did something along the lines of, did you arrest anyone else? Any, is anyone else in custody? Uh, did your writing and reporting and investigation on this reveal anything else about that? Any possibility uh, in your mind that there could have been someone else potentially involved here? Well, I think what's interesting is in the Reddit survey that he posted months prior, one of the questions he was soliciting answers from from criminals was, did you commit the crime with somebody else? I think that's very interesting, or, or that might not be, that's a paraphrase, but but he was asking, was anybody else involved in the commission of the crime that you committed? And then when he asked that question reportedly, that, that becomes very interesting, right? I did not get anybody uh, on record answering anything to that effect, like that they thought, you know, yes, there's more information, you'll learn about it later or whatever. So nobody, so this is all just speculation, right? And uh, on my part, because there was never ev any evidence provided to at least in the public domain that there that there's anything like that or from any interviews that I that I conducted or anything like that um i don't personally based on what i learned believe that any any there's any reason to believe anybody else was involved the the dna they found uh is a is a match to to brian koberger's dna first it was a match to his father's and then and then and then once they had koberger in custody they they were able to to match it to him specifically. When I say a match to his father's, I mean a match to his paternal line. Mm -hmm. um, and then they were able to match it specifically to Koberger. Um, I would imagine unless they have some, unless they have arrested somebody that we don't know about uh, and they're not telling us for someone got and, and somehow in the miracle of the universe, nobody figured that out with all the millions of people searching through this case. Um, I would imagine that they don't have any, that there's no physical evidence to, to make anybody believe that anybody else was involved. Now, the, the d defense, let's back up just quickly and say the defense has argued that 
there are multiple sources of DNA found at the scene that were not Brian Koberger's. Fair enough. And I could see that spiraling into a quest to figure out who else might have been involved. But you have to remember, these are college kids in a house that was parked with partiers all the time. People have sex, people get drunk, people like there were, there could have been 300 people in that house over the previous three months, you know, and random people. And, um, you know, look, I'm not privy to their sex lives or to their, or to their drinking lives or to their bloodletting or whatever, you know, like who, who knows what happens in, in party houses at colleges and, and any, any of that DNA could have been from any other source not related to the murders. And so it's, it's hard to say that there's somebody else just because there was other DNA in a house like that. What, what do you make? I mean, it got, it's a little problematic because of the age we're living, living in in 2023 and social media. And there's all these cyber sleuths out there. And you just talked about sex lives um, of these college kids. Um, there was all these rumors that it was a drug house. Um, and there's, you know, people on you know both sides, whether you agree with it or not, you know, then there's issues of victim shaming. But you, and you talked about this a little bit, but just what, what do you make of the world that we are living in now when you were researching this book um, with all these people, not only with just opinions, but actual theories on this case about who did it, why they did it. Uh, what the motives were, things of that nature. By the way, real quick, County Cork just got the Audible book. Thank you for your respectful reporting, followed by, there you go, Whole Foods, our king of Whole Foods. His book is on Audible. There you go. Uh, but what about these cyber sleuths and uh, the problems uh, or maybe the solutions? I don't know how you feel about it that uh, social media has engendered. Yeah, man, I'm a big fan of crowdsourcing information. Um, I, I think that shows like yours or many others that treat these cases respectfully are really important and, and provide information to the crowd and then the crowd goes and digs on their own and though some of those some of those um, uh, uh, people uh, submit evidence and tip or tips and things like that to police departments and now you've got six thousand people submitting tips on cases, whereas prior to crowdsourcing of information, you would have only had three tips, maybe, or five or a hundred, and more tips, the better. On the one hand, on the other hand, 6,000 tips means 5,000 of them are going to be bunk, and you've got to find the, the police force personnel to sort through all that stuff. And a lot of those tips are going to be not vetted, and they're going to be posted online, and they're going to, and they're going to throw shade at people who are innocent, and they're going to cause innocent people to uh, uh, run from their lives after receiving death threats and things like that. All of that happened in this case. There are multiple people who, who were labeled as, as uh, associated with the crimes, received death uh, threats, were dogpiled on on social media. On the other hand, in, in times where it works right, police all over the world have been getting great tips from people through social media channels uh, in a way that they could have never gotten from just the standard uh, scotch taping uh, uh, a piece of a piece of uh, flyer to a poll saying, uh, you know, tell us what you know, right? So social media is massively helpful and massively problematic, just as it is in our lives. I mean, it's great that somebody wants to learn about this case and they can just get on and, and watch you and watch me talk about this and they learn something. It's also pretty hellish for. Uh, for the people who get on or for the victims of people who get on and, and talk smack about them 
in ways that aren't vetted, in ways that fr from the voices of people who have no investigative prowess, who have never done this before, they're just running TikToks and 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 with millions of followers, and they're and they're just kind of silly. And you know, I, it's just well, well now I'm cut not your point. Shade. Yeah. But I think I think consumers now, consu yeah, it cuts both ways. But I think consumers now, the people who are you know watching this and and reading things and going on the Reddits, you got to have a very strong, um, you know, mind and a strong sense of self because you now have to. It used to be three uh, major networks: CBS, NBC, ABC, and the big magazines. Now news is everywhere, so you've got to. Um, You've, you know, you've got to do vetting yourself and you've got to use um, your own critical thinking uh, to, to get the information that you are trying to, you know, absorb. Uh, Faro Gamma, and I apologize if you kind of touched on this, because uh, I'm doing 19 things here at uh, once, but were you able to find or prove that Koberger had actually been inside 1122 King Road? Um, did you look into that? Uh, shout out to Papa Bear for this. Uh, by the way, Copper Horse, according to the COE, Look at this. She just gifted in other 50 memberships. That's 100 memberships. Jersey is in the house tonight. Thank you very much, Copper Horse. Um, really appreciate that. Brian Koberger. Uh, look at this. Ned Smith, one of the greatest compliments ever. This interview is worth missing Thursday night football. Don't even know who's playing tonight. Let me know. I uh, would love to know. And you've got the M MLB playoffs going on, too. Uh, but... <laughs> Brian Koberger, do we know if he was ever in that house? We were talking about parties. Was he ever in there as far as we know? I I was not able to, uh, through talking to neighbors, through talking to everybody I talked to, I was not able to confirm that Brian Koberger was inside that house. But the caveat, and I, and I realized that the origin of the question is like, um, a prosecution is probably going to have to figure out how to do that, right? But I don't believe that, uh, like I said before, like I, I have no reason to believe that the police fabricated any evidence. So what 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 we would have to believe if he wasn't ever in that house was that his DNA got onto a knife sheath, a knife sheath that then ended up in that house. Um, but when when asked what his alibi was, Brian Koberger said that his his alibi was that he was driving around in the area. Well, that's everybody's alibi who's alone. You ask a million people who who don't really have an alibi, and they'll say, "Well, I was driving around or whatever." He his alibi wasn't something that allowed the police to see how his how how he didn't do it, and that this knife sheath. Oh yeah, I had a knife, and I lost it at wherever. You know, no addressing of the knife or his DNA or the sheath or whatever whatever it is. So I mean, I mean, I know I'm I'm talking about multiple points at once, but. And it's and it's not super clear what I'm getting at at the moment, but it's basically. There's well, I was, no was going to yeah, I was going to ask no you about the alibi, and the alibi seems to be a bit um, ridiculous. But when I've talked to detectives, uh, Phil Waters in particular, when it pertains to this driving alibi, he says it's an admission, not an alibi. Yes, exactly. It's saying my car was in the area. I was there. I was at the scene. Of the I coincidentally was in the area of the murders. And coincidentally, my DNA was found in bed beside two of the victims. I mean, that's a lot of coincidence. And that's the thing. And that's everybody's alibi. It's, it's we saw you coming out of that store. And later we went into the store and there were six people dead. Yeah, I was coming out of the store, but I didn't kill nobody. That's what everybody says. Yeah, I was there, but I didn't do it. And that's basically what his alibi was. Not in the house, 
but yeah, you got my car in the vicinity. And I think that, I think I was at Pharaoh, something Pharaoh. Yeah. Pharaoh Gamma. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, The the question is really, I think uh, important because that's basically what the leading to what the defense is going to argue. There's no, they're going to say there's no proof that Brian Koberger is in the house. And the prosecution is say the proof is that his DNA was in the house. And that's how cases are solved. And, and if we and if we don't convict Brian Koberger based on that, then you're going to have to go back and you're going to have to look at 4,000 other murders that were that were solved based on DNA and say, yeah, my my blood was there, but I wasn't. So like that's going to be a really tricky thing. And and so the defense is going to have to come up with more than just he wasn't in the house. They're going to have to come up with something um, because DNA puts people in the house traditionally, whether or not that's the case, even if sometimes probably they were wrong. Sometimes people are, are convicted. Innocent people are probably convicted because their DNA was in the house and they, and they weren't right. But in this, in this case, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, Caro here says a week before Brian was arrested, someone posted. So you're saying he's from Pennsylvania. Then Dr. Gary B. Bercato, who's a best guest, thought it was either Brian or an investigator being naughty. That's an interesting little fact. And then Farrell Gamma, this is an interesting point again with another question. Uh, did you get any info on this DoorDash delivery driver? Because, you know, the timing of that is insane. It's basically this guy pulled up just right around maybe just moments before this murder actually took place. Any uh, reporting on that? No, this DoorDash uh, driver is, is one of the people who is under lock and key from a, from a interview perspective. I mean, Mm. uh, just, just as close to the case as, as uh, the family members and stuff like that. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of, ton of people that would, would have been great to talk to, but by the time I was actually writing the book, um, you know, they're, they're legally not allowed to. So they'd have to have real motivation to tell me something uh, or any newscaster uh, for that matter. Um, Is that because of the gag order that he's not allowed to speak at all? Yeah. I mean, look, and, and I know there's some discrepancy about what that gag order means. You, you know, we mentioned our, our mutual friend, uh uh, Kevin at the Idaho Statesman is a great, great guy. Um, Shout out to Fix. Shout out to Kevin Fixler. Yeah, he did some great reporting on this case. Um, there's some discrepancy. He and I, he and I have battled about what the gag order actually means. You know, um, he's coming at it from a journalist perspective, I think, and I'm coming at it from a from a um, maybe a different perspective. But but because I believe that the I believe that people sh- should not be able to talk to the press in the midst of a, of a, of a, uh, international trial that revolves around their, the evidence they might provide. I believe that they should not be able to, as a daily journalist, Kevin, of course, and other daily journalists around the world believe, no, screw that. That information is, is important to the public. And I get that as well. I totally get that. If my life were on the line and I were sitting there, um, or if it, or if, if for that matter, if it were one of my, uh, loved ones, God forbid, and I were sitting there, I think I would not want any communication about the case to get out as long as I believed that it was on the up and up, how it was being carried out, right? Um, so my point to you is that the DoorDash person, I don't see any reason why that person should talk to me. But yes, I tried, wasn't able to figure out how to how to make that happen. Um, just the, in the same way that I wouldn't be able to... Uh, um, uh, get get a police personnel, any police personnel at the time, co- 
currently to talk to me about the case. They're not allowed to. So they'd have to have a real reason to do so. And the only reason to do so would be if they thought that the the, the case was um, collapsing for some reason uh, because of uh, uh, inner workings that they needed to get out to the press, right? To be a whistleblower or something. Um, but yeah. I mean, if they got their case under lock, if they got their case solid and they believe that this person is going, going to prison for this, for these crimes, there's not a single reason they would let that they would let anybody close to their evidence tell me anything or speak for themselves about anything. Right. So it's, they, they want to conceal all that. So. And the, uh, the title of the book is great and it's chilling. Uh, how'd you come up with it while Idaho slept three words, powerful. Uh, you know, uh, it's just one of those things that happened. I don't know. You know, you come up, you, titles, happen, titles happen. I don't know. Um, it, obviously this, we know now that the victims were not, uh, necessarily asleep in the way that we think of being asleep, but Idaho was, uh, we, we woke up, we woke up to real horror, um, the day, the morning after those murders. And, um, yeah. it's the story that I will, uh, definitely not forget. Uh, the G of twins here says, this has been a great interview. Matri, uh, this has been a fabulous interview. Thank you both so much. Can't wait to get the book. Uh, M. Morgan, who's friends with Zana's mom. I will never jump on a bandwagon again after this case. I feel so horrible for even thinking it. I learned my lesson. Uh, J. Ruben Appleman, uh, he is a gentleman and a scholar, as my mother would say, a true mensch. Uh, his latest book is While Idaho Slept. Let me put that cover up there. That's what the book cover looks like. Um, and uh, it tells a horrific story of the University of Idaho murders, which you just heard all about, that gripped the world's attention. Uh, happened back in November 2022, so we're coming up on the year anniversary, which is hard to believe. J. Reuben Appleman's true crime memoir, The Kill Jar, was a massive hit, uh, and that's why he got this deal. The Kill Jar uh, turned into the very popular Hulu docuseries, Children of the Snow. Um, the Kill Jar was noted as among the tr best true crime books of the year by the New York Times book review, L. Oxygen, Bustle, Crime, Reads, and the USA Today Network of Newspapers. So an accomplished author, I always tell my kids, things don't happen quickly took them uh the uh the, is it the uh I'm, I'm blanking on malcolm gladwell's book but he says 10,000 hours to accomplish anything good you want to be a black belt in jiu-jitsu 10,000 hours you want to be a great author got to put in 10,000 hours you heard jay rubin say that he put in uh 30 years worth of writing and now uh it is paying off with uh these last couple books jay rubin thank you for being here your final thoughts on this uh interesting interview about the Idaho murders. Yeah, I just, uh, I'm very thankful for the the people who are weighing in with comments on your show right now um, and who have been doing it, especially people like uh, the, the woman who said she's friends with Zana's mom and stuff like that. Um, I, I just, my, my big message to everybody who hasn't read the book and wonders why the hell some guy is even writing this kind of book. Um, it, it really is to memorialize the victims, to give voice to the people who are suffering, to deal with how communities uh, uh, or, or to voice how communities deal with the visitation of this kind of violence. I have immense respect for the people in the midst of, of this horrific series of events. And, um, and I just, it's very important to me that I get it right. And that, that, uh, that people know that. So I appreciate, I appreciate when I get those comments. And we appreciate you. It sounds like uh, your heart is in the right place when writing this book. Let us not forget Tim Jansen, Tallahassee's famed criminal defense attorney, 
Guy uh, fell on his bicycle, cracked five ribs. Uh, not a good situation. We're going to keep after justice for Ellen Greenberg. Who knows? Maybe Jay Ruben Appleman's next book will be about the Ellen Greenberg case, which I will tell him all about uh, once we sign off tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Great, Scott. It's your true crime, Phil. Look at this, the COE, the giveaways begin tomorrow. We've got some really good goodies from CrimeCon coming up. Uh, Scott and Phil are here tomorrow. Uh, I should say next week, the Charlie Adelson trial kicks off. We're going to be all over that, this disaster going on with the Delphi murders. We're going to be doing that as well on uh, Tuesday. So we've got uh, next week already uh, in the works. Until then... Love you, America. Love you, Moscow, Idaho, Boise, Idaho, the Republic of Ireland, Tasmania. Uh, let me get our show close up here. Uh, Jay Rubin, don't go anywhere. Love you, Australia, New Zealand, everywhere, near and far in between. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and... The chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.